welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening, David. Yes. How are you? I'm glad to have you back. Yes, it was uh, it was a lot of fun being, as you say, on assignment. I was uh, back in Missouri um, at my my old theater teacher's retirement party, which was a surprise for him. He uh, did not know that's what he was walking into. Oh, okay. So having all of these old uh, these old students from the last thirty four years, I don't know why he couldn't do one more and do thirty five, but whatever. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it was a lot of fun, and it was actually kind of a roast. So I was one of the speakers there. Oh, so. so he remembered you. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I was just saying that would have been awkward. Yeah, I mean, look, when you win uh, Best Actor State of Missouri in the right, year 2000, right. which I did incorporate into my speech, and I got applause from that room. Well, if not there's just any scorn. people on the planet who care about <laughs> the that, only it's people. the people who are willing to travel for their <laughs> high school <laughs> drama teacher's retirement party. <laughs> yeah, but it was it was a great deal of fun, and it was kind of my my goodbye to uh, to Nixa because my mom has moved away, so it's an excuse to go there one last time. And also, you by by being back in Springfield, Missouri, and I, I haven't actually asked you yet if you if you've done this. Uh, you had an opportunity to go to an Alamo Draft House. I did. Well, did I you go? theoretically had an opportunity, and I realized that my two my two and a half days there were very full, so right. I did not get to go. But I really okay. wanted to. So keeping up the perfect Battleship Pretender record of not having been yeah. to an Alamo Draft House. We've been doing this. Well over ten years, <laughs> yeah, and uh, we are big movie people, but we are not big. We well, never I feel like not that big, apparently. <laughs> for, a period, for about half of that time, that's our guest right there. Indeed, for about half of that time, Alamo Draft House has been coming to Los Angeles. That's it just right, hasn't happened yet. Yeah, uh, but come, uh, come to LA, and then we'll maybe we'll go to your theater. Yeah, and I, you know, I'd go to Austin, but I, uh, I've said this before. I feel like I'm not cool enough. I'm not sure. cool enough for South by Southwest. I'm not cool enough for South Fantastic by? Fest. I call it South by. See, I'm not even that cool. <laughs> um, all right, so that's how we're doing. Uh, Has our guest been? I, I know we haven't introduced you. Yeah, I'm sorry. H- have you been to an Alamo Draft House? Many times. I, I've been to both South by Southwest and to Fantastic Fest many, oh my many years. So, uh, so I'm very familiar with their queso and boozy milkshakes. Okay. Uh, yeah. And their uh, peerless presentation as well. Is it weird to you that... Springfield, Missouri, the third most populous city in the state of Missouri, has one before Los Angeles does. Yes, I mean the <laughs> fact that they announced it how how many five at least five years ago, yeah, yeah. and it still isn't here is you know I'm sure uh, the result of some bureaucratic red tape of some sure. kind or whatever. Yeah. But but it is a thing where like. I get emails regularly about events that they're having. They're like, Oh, one night only we're at Alamo draft house. We're going to show blade runner, the final cut. And I get real excited. And then I'm like, Oh shit, there's not one anywhere near me that I can go to attend. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, and, and this, so this was the Campbell 16 in Springfield, which closed down a year ago. That's what it was called when it was a Werenberg. Yeah. When it was a Werenberg, Werenberg theater. Um, and I was very sad just on principle because I, uh, that's where I saw a lot of movies that were very important to me. Uh, and then, uh, it closed down. But then when I saw that Alamo was taking over, I was very excited. And, uh, so I did drive by it at like 2 AM and it was still very lit up and I was able to see inside and they completely gutted the inside. It looks a hundred percent different. And, uh, I don't know. I feel like you can never go home again, Tyler. You can never go home again. Absolutely. <laughs> but you can check out our fine sponsors. Like who? That's now you're up first. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. This episode is, I wanted to change it up, but you refused. Nope. Yes. And David, uh, this episode is, this episode, pardon me. 
Uh, it's been two weeks. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic <coughs> films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $5.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. I was actually describing Mubi to somebody yesterday, and uh, they said, wait, there's only 30 movies? And I said, yes, it's only 30 at a time. There's a new one every day. And this this person paused for a moment. And I thought, like, huh, what's this person going to say? And they said, that's kind of the best. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And then they immediately said what you and I have said, which is, yeah, I just spend so much time just scrolling through Netflix and sure, looking yeah. through. They've got a bunch of movies that aren't really that good and then a handful that I've already seen that are good. Mm-hmm. Um, but movie, you got 30 movies. They're all great. And currently available on movie are three of Alfred Hitchcock's earliest films, Champagne, The Skin Game, and Rich and Strange, three films of melodrama and romance. These movies illustrate the diverse tone of Hitchcock's early career and the versatility of his directorial abilities. And then there is also a special offer for listeners about pretension excuse me you can try movie free for a month just go to movie.com that's m-u-b-i.com slash battleship to redeem now and i would like to tell you while we have your attention about tweakedaudio.com which is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors they look great they sound great tyler and i use them each and every day of our lives uh, and they're available for a low low price at tweakedaudio.com but hold on don't uh get ahead of yourself don't put the cart before the horse mm-hmm. don't get out over your skis oh nice <laughs> uh, i'm about to tell you about a great offer which is that if you use the offer code pretension mm-hmm. you get one third off that uh low low price and no shipping uh charges so go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking what's your secret begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 bite clear aligners are doctor directed and delivered to your door Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Do you realize how difficult it is to get actually out over your skis? It I, means you've fallen over. Uh, I, and you've probably broken your ankles now that I think I've never it. skied. I'm surprised you have skied before I have. Well, I lived in Denver uh, for many years, and uh, my family used to ski. I uh, enjoyed it only up to a point, and... yeah, it's okay. You're locked is anyone, in. Like, you're in definitely my... in trouble if you get in front okay. of your skis. Ex- yeah. Yes, one uh, way or another, <laughs> bad things have happened, or uh, they're imminently happening. Exactly. Yeah, you're right in the thick of it. <laughs> um, I was just going to say there aren't a lot of people in my life compared to whom I could seem active or outdoorsy, and you might be the only one. <clears throat> so I'm surprised you went skiing first. That is, yes, I guess there is probably only that. Uh, I've been whitewater rafting. Have you done that? See, I've never done that either. Well, I mean, you live in Denver, you do these kind of things, I and then when so. you when you're in Missouri, you know, you just but now like I you visit, win best actor. I That's visit my do. family in in not, I'm not from Idaho, but I have family in Boise now, and I visit them all the time, and they love to go whitewater rafting, and so they'll tell me like, there's you know, this is available this weekend, and I'll be like. Have a blast. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good for you. My family and I did it once. We were there with another family that we didn't know. We were paired with them. And there was this uh, little whiny kid who just kept saying, like, we got to go faster. We got to go faster. And, of course, that's the kid that... Uh, 
fell under the raft and whose head we felt bouncing <laughs> under our feet. So we got him out eventually. What but, a little uh, loser. Exactly. All right. He deserved it. Um, That's why int- slow and steady wins the race, David. <laughs> let's introduce our guest. Indeed. Uh, he's been, well, I normally would say he's been sitting patiently and quietly, but he's actually been a very active part of the conversation <laughs> so far. Um, uh, he's been uh, writing uh, about and reporting on film for uh, over 15 years uh, for outlets such as The Hollywood Reporter and Variety and IndieWire and IGN, and now he is a film reporter at M-Time. It's Todd Gilchrist. Hi, guys. Thanks for coming. Glad to uh, to be joining you. I'm glad that the uh, listeners finally got to know the, the name yeah. of the person who's been sharing insights on I was the Alamo w- Draft House. Well, I was wondering if we were just going to go the entire episode with me <laughs> contributing and not being introduced, and then and then you guys could just have a contest and say who is this mysterious person, and then it would. I'm sure that the answers would be much more interesting than the <laughs> actual uh, that, reveal of who I am. But that's a fun idea to do someday. I'm not sure what <laughs> guest we would like would be willing to like come up here and go through the hassle of it would have to be a, so we were talking a first time guest right it would, it would have to be yeah. okay yeah we'll, we'll figure it out i'll see if someone i someone with a prankish demeanor sure sure <laughs> um so uh todd uh, i'm gonna start just by asking the question that i ask uh, all our first time guests which is wait well, why are you laughing i'm laughing because it'd be funny if it were gilbert godfrey oh, yeah he's um, prankish but uh, I was, I was, I, you know what's weird you would picture gilbert godfrey because i was picturing emo phillips yeah someone who's but then again who has if, a very distinctive yeah, yeah, voice yeah, yes. if either one of them is on the podcast there'd be no mystery <laughs> right that's what i think is yeah. funny yeah. and then that's we put funny. but we put the contest out out there as though it were difficult um I get it. I'm catching or up what here. actually could be interesting is if you got emu phillips to come on and do an impersonation of gilbert godfrey oh gosh, there we go. and then it would just and then it would blow people's minds yeah. that's i think that's that's what you got to do you get a person who already has a recognizable voice but who is good at doing an impersonation right. of a another equally distinctive uh, person with another equally distinctive voice. And Gilbert Godfrey, oddly oddly enough, does a very good Jerry Seinfeld. I don't know Uh, if you've ever heard it, but it's spot on. I haven't. But I listen to, I know, I'm not sure if you've listened, Tyler, or if you ever listened to the, the, one of my favorite podcasts, The Best Show. It's called The Best Show. Uh, this past week, Kevin Corrigan was a guest. He's been nice. before. Kevin Corrigan him. is a fantastic impressionist. Oh, really? I, I didn't, like, uh, I don't know if you knew that. Well, not a place he, I, I he didn't did, know that he, does, he does a, a spot on Martin Scorsese. He does a great Danny Aiello. It's mostly, like, male New York actors <laughs> yeah, like him sure. that he can yeah. slip in and out of. Anyway, Enough Todd, of that. Sorry. I have to ask you the question, which is, where are you from? Where did you grow up? Uh, I'm originally from North Carolina. Uh, I grew up, I actually moved around a lot when I was younger. Um, I lived in, by by the time I entered eighth grade, I'd lived in uh, Atlanta or outside Atlanta. I'd lived in Dallas. I'd lived in Anaheim and then moved, uh, and and also in in Richmond, Virginia, and then moved back to Charlotte, North Carolina, which is where both my parents are from, or my mom's from Charlotte. My dad's from Fayetteville. Um, And then I went to school, high school and college uh, in North Carolina. I went to the UNC, UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, and then from there, um, actually, I moved to Florida. I lived there. I lived in Miami for two years and then moved out to L.A. in 2001. Um, wow, that's uh, uh, and I'm remembering that uh, just two weeks ago we had uh, a friend of yours, Brent Simon, on the show. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I asked I asked him this question because I, when I hear North Carolina, I think the Biltmore Mansion. Have you been to the Biltmore Mansion? I haven't. No. Really? I mean, not not that I, I, I can't remember ever having gone on a field trip to the Biltmore really? Mansion. Um, it's funny because Brent and I, we've been friends since college. And he also went to UNC. And he and I, we were writing features together 
then writing about like summer, I mean, doing summer movie previews and stuff like that for the student newspaper. I, I very specifically remember when Lost Highway came out. Uh, I think he was going to cover both, and we we decided, or maybe he just sort of graciously has said, "You can review the the soundtrack, and I'll review the movie." Because uh-huh. we both share uh, like affinity for both music and movies, and and um, and also David Lynch for that matter. Um, but yeah, I grew up um, around Charlotte and and spent in the years during college and and for about two years after that like you guys are talking about a theater that meant so much to you there was a a theater called the movies at uh it was called the movies at sardis and it has subsequently gone through i don't know 10 different owners you know in the last five or ten years or whatever um but it was a theater where i mean i saw like almost every movie, mm-hmm. you know, every big movie or, and, and we would go and I, like, I remember going there and helping rebuild, uh, like the last, uh, reel of, of Titanic. Cause it fell off the platter and mm-hmm. things like that. Wow. I mean, like, and, and it wasn't even when I was working there, like I just had a friend who was a projectionist and we would go and we just, you know, go through these gauntlets of watching movies until all hours of the morning and, and, and stuff like that. Um, I had a question. Tyler has a question. <laughs> Uh, it's not so much. I, I, I've been asking a lot of questions to the room lately, but this one is just for our guest. Okay. I want to see if you have any theories because this is something I have noticed. Uh, a shocking number of people, um, and I don't. I don't remember uh, if I asked um, previous guests this, but I know a surprising number of like screenwriters and directors and actors out here that are from North Carolina, mm-hmm. and a surprising number of critics. Like, but I don't know any from Wyoming or any number of like the other states. Mm-hmm. And so, do you have any? Wait, theory? We know someone from Wyoming. Who isn't Susan Burke from Wyoming? Oh, I don't remember that. Or Montana. I always get those two mixed up. I think man, I think Montana, but no, I might be wrong. But right. either way, um, the point is, I don't know if we know one person. Then maybe that's exciting. <laughs> but uh, do you have any thought as to what it is about North Carolina that seems to? churn out so many people that are interested in film or the art, uh, the dramatic arts in general. Well, I mean, I, you know, I had a couple of friends who went to North Carolina school of the arts, which mm-hmm. is where I believe Jody Hill, uh, okay. and David Gordon green mm-hmm. and, and, um, what's his name? Uh, Jody Hill's frequent leading man. What's it? Uh, yeah, Danny McBride. Danny Kinda. McBride. I think, I think they all might've gone there. Um, but they're certainly all from North Carolina, even if they didn't. Yeah. Um, I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I mean, that's a, that's an interesting thing. I mean, certainly I know because of uh, where I'm from and the people that like Sean O'Connell, who, who writes for, uh, is it uh, cinema blend? Like he's one of the editors there. Um, I, I don't know if we, I don't know if I knew, I mean, I didn't know him when I was younger, but, I like he he's from he lives there still and he works uh for cinema blend and then you know there's people like sean mcclanahan and adam frazier mm-hmm. people you know um i i will tell you that when i was a kid uh, lawrence topman was the film critic at the charlotte observer mm-hmm. and i like loathed him with every fiber of my being mm-hmm. uh i because i per, perhaps because of some description someone had given me, but I always got a sense that he did not particularly enjoy movies. Like they were, it was sort of a second, uh, like a, like a, like a a thing that he was forced into when, after he couldn't sort of cover theater or something like that. Interesting. And there seemed to be a, uh, 
I don't know, sort of a cynicism a little bit to his writing. I just remember that when they re-released Grease in like 1998 or seven. Uh, he gave it like a C and I was like, that's just a dick move. <laughs> I mean, like I love Greece and I mean like if you don't like Greece, that's okay. I guess yeah, I might be a dick. Like I was uh, like, but, but it was, it was just a very, I'm, I'm like, if you don't like it, that's fine. I'm like, but the, like reviewing it and giving it like a C to me is just like being a jerk. There, so. is, there is an element to that where you almost feel like he's hated his whole life. He's like now, but it hasn't yeah. been in theaters in a while. Yeah. Now's my chance. Yeah. yeah. I'm so glad it came out so I can pan it. Yeah. And I mean, which, which quite frankly, like I kind of understand because of yeah. course like re re-releases of the, I mean, I remember when the, when they did the 3d re-release of uh, Phantom Menace and at the time I wasn't reviewing movies. Yeah. Uh, but when the 3D version came out, I mean, like I kind of openly was like, this is the review I always wanted to write about this movie. Um, but at the same time, it was like, I do think there's a distinction between like what you want to call honestly assessing a movie's merits or lack sure. thereof and sort of just trolling people who like it, sure. or, you know, and, and, and as I recall, like his review of that was the latter, but, okay. but to me that was sort of symptomatic of like, sort of his attitude about a lot of stuff. Um, so that doesn't answer your question in any way. Um, but it's, it's kind of an unanswerable question, but it's a, it's a thing that I've, that I've noticed that like, uh, maybe, it, maybe it is that certain filmmakers came out of there and other people took note of that and thought like, Oh, maybe there's something interesting about this area. I don't know exactly, but it's just something I noticed. Well, Wilmington definitely has been a destination for, for filming, uh, for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, one of my best friends, uh, who went to UNC Chapel Hill with me. I mean, he shot, uh, he was in the pilot of Dawson's Creek, for example, hmm. and they shot that entirely in Wilmington. Right. Um, and it was funny because like he was living in, in North Carolina and he was working, trying, trying to be a working actor and he got this gig and he told me about it and it was, you know, say a year or 18 months before the show premiered. And, uh, and it was a testament to the fact that at the time I had really no like practical sense of like the way the entertainment industry worked or anything. But but it was like he he did it. And then when the show premiered, I think it was like maybe a day the day of the premiere. I was like, wait a minute, George, George was in Dawson's Creek. And I got really <laughs> excited and and like and I, I managed to turn it on like at the exact moment he was in like his one scene. Uh, sadly, I believe he got recast by an actor who was oh. I will diplomatically or not I'll just talk shit uh, was seemed to be much lighter skin than he was ah, um, I see but the character was effectively written out of the series pretty early on anyway but but it was like a thing where doesn't matter how light that yeah, skin is yeah, get yeah. him out of there yeah yeah uh, <laughs> but but yeah so I guess I'm casting <laughs> sure, sure. On but, but I do remember you know I mean I, like when I when I graduated somebody put me in touch with a person I remember having like a phone call with them about like they worked doing a lot of production yeah. stuff in in Wilmington and I think that they're I think that I mean they're certainly I don't know if there has been more or less yeah. or in terms of increase or decline or steady but I feel like there was a time when when there was a lot in the in the 80s and early 90s I wonder if it's a place where like like Georgia now where there are just like huge tax breaks to shoot there and sometimes just 
a, a generation of young film fans or maybe just people in general who like movies, uh, but they're like, wow, a lot of stuff has been shot here. Maybe they go to set and see stuff being shot, or maybe they're just aware of it. And I don't know, just the awareness of it happening around you can be enough to get you interested in this thing that you might not otherwise be or see it as an actual career opportunity uh, as opposed to just a form of entertainment. I don't know. Sure. I mean, when I was in, I'll tell you that when the abyss came out, um, I was really excited because that one of the trailers was basically just focused on the process of them using like this abandoned nuclear, not abandoned, but it was like a never utilized nuclear reactor that they filled with water and hmm. they put submerged the, submersibles and all the yeah. other stuff in to, to be able to shoot that movie. And that was in North Carolina. Oh. And so for me, I was like, I remember being really exhilarated by that as a kid because I was so excited. I mean, I was excited enough about the movie as, as it was, but like the fact that it was shot like in Charlotte and there were, you know, I mean, there were like a handful of other movies shot there, but the, the really weird thing is that notwithstanding like say the theater that I really liked, I mean, which was a pretty mainstream theater. There was only like a two screen art house in town. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, and mind you, I I remember seeing, you know, Buffalo 66 there. I remember Mm -hmm. seeing, you know, Henry V. I mean, just seeing like lots of movies over the years, but at the same time, after I moved away, which was like in 2001, uh, I'm sorry, in in 1999, like, uh, punch drunk love never played Charlotte. Mm. I mean, which, which to me was, and I, my friends like who loved all movies and were obsessed with independent film and, and, and everything else were like mystified as, as I was, I was just like, how can you not play a Paul Thomas Anderson movie in Charlotte? I mean, Charlotte Mm -hmm. is, is one of, if not uh, the biggest city in, in the state. Well, so yeah, it's uh, when I lived in Springfield, Missouri, when I lived there, there were no art theaters. There was just one that played mainstream stuff. And every once in a while, it's like, hey, they got topsy turvy. That's mm-hmm. fun. I have no doubt that it did poorly there. What was the name of that theater? It was the Springfield 8. It's not there anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But now there are actual art I, house there. So I'm from St. Louis, but I lived in Springfield for a year, uh, my first year of college. And I remember I'm trying to think of some of the like quote-unquote, like, art house movies. Well, that's where or, I saw like, Time Code. It's where I saw Magnolia, to speak of other 99 movies. Uh, I think I saw uh, Duets, the movie. <laughs> wow. With, um, <laughs> it's Gwyneth Paltrow. Who else is it? It's the karaoke movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bruce Paltrow, her husband, her, yeah. her father directed, directed that. Excuse me. Yeah. Is Paul uh, Giamatti in that? I think he is. Okay. Okay. I never saw it. How was it, David? I, uh, yeah, I, don't, I don't remember like, liking it that much. I, I don't know. It was, I'm sure it was fine. I mean, it's no grease. I, yeah, I can do well, C+. It's no grease, that's for sure. <laughs> sure. This is um, this is really just a prelude for me to just dominate the entire podcast by talking about grease. Well, that let's was, talk about this, okay. then. How do you feel? I'm not sure uh, if you, uh, you know, what age, age generation you consider yourself to belong to. How do you feel about this, this sort of millennial trend that Grease 2 is better than Grease. Oh, get the hell out of here. <laughs> See, again, I think I might be one of these people. I mean, I like, I like Grease I mean, 2 better. I, m- mind you, like, I don't have anything in particular against Grease 2. And as a matter of fact, when I was a kid, like, I remember seeing it and and liking it. I mean, Cool Rider is kind of a dope song, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, certainly, like, 1982, 81, 82, Michelle Pfeiffer. Sure. I mean, like, that might be 85% of the reason. I yeah, I mean, much. like, I mean, she's... She's no joke, you know. Um, I don't. Again, I you know, it's not a movie that, but it's not a movie that I feel strongly about. Like thinking is bad as much as I know, like every fiber of Greece, right? 
like start to finish my, you know, it was one that my parents showed us when we were a kid, when it was re released, uh, we went to my friend's theater and we must've watched it like six times, you know, just to see it on the big screen because it was only available that way for a limited amount of time. Um, now you say you're a music guy and I'm sure I'll, uh, I'll ask you about music in, in a little bit, but are you outside of Greece? Are you generally a musical guy? You, you like musicals? Uh, I do. It, it's, um, contemporary musicals less so I feel like um, but you know it's like a movie like Hedwig to me is like transcendent I mean mm-hmm. like I love something movie. like that yeah. mm-hmm. um, I mean I, I <laughs> it was like Lars von Trier is a filmmaker that I have this like sort of uh, like uh, animosity towards his sort of pretentiousness and yet like I saw um dancer in the dark and i well, i mean i loved it i mean yeah. like you know it's i think it's like a magnificent movie that i also probably could never watch again i mean it's so like brutally depressing yeah. um yeah i did watch it again not that long ago and it is brutally depressing but it's great and also it's a reminder there was like three or four years there where a lot of movies are being shot on like mini dv mm-hmm. and it's like it looks so i mean it looks terrible it looks terrible yeah yeah like chuck and buck is another one of those mm-hmm. that like looks like uh, it, it just looks like the there's filth on the screen yeah it's, it's so gross looking that's interesting i remember i haven't seen chuck and buck since it was like a new release uh and i think at the time i was so engrossed in the story that i this speaks to the type of film goer i was at the time where it's like it was all character and story and that's those are fascinating characters but i think it didn't even occur to me that it might look different than most films well i'll tell you yeah i remember when uh, Michael Almereda Reda's Nadja came out and that was a, it was a really big deal that he shot even just tiny little parts of it with one of those like a Fisher price pixel vision cameras. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was, I mean, that was sort of at the dawn of digital photography. I mean, and I don't think that they were actively trying to use that as a, like, is like really it was more for texture than I think it was right. for like a deliberate, like, or even a cost cutting measure or something like that. Um, I mean, I couldn't tell you, I mean like now I, I remember when Chuck and Buck came out and I saw it and I liked it. Yeah. Um, but, but every once in a while I'll watch something where I am like, I'm like, Oh, this is kind of not like, I, I remember watching Ali for example, yeah. um, which is a movie that I have mixed feelings about, but I remember really it being noticeable to me, like in the moments where he was using digital cameras to like get inside the fights and stuff like that. It wasn't necessarily a problem as much as it was just like, this was really conspicuous to me. And I, and so that I was thinking I was put in mind of Michael Mann just based on Mm -hmm. this discussion. Um, I was watching some, uh, uh, special features on uh, Manhunter uh, the other day, and I was just thinking about like just how visually gorgeous that film is, and Thief, and uh, The Insider, and that sort of thing. And I know that he moved into digital. This is a thing we've talked about uh, a lot on the show. And I think one of the things that bothers me about that choice of his is that it does make things look flatter and muddier and just, I would say less aesthetically pleasing. And that, which means that is, and he can afford film cameras. So it's clearly a choice that he's making. Here's where I'll disagree with you because I think unlike some other directors uh, who were first going digital at that time, uh, 
Michael Mann was never trying to trick you into thinking it was shot on film. Right, not like, at all. You're talking with Ali, if you think about like the nighttime scenes in Collateral, sure. mm-hmm. or of course... Uh, the entirety of Public Enemies. Uh, which is yeah. one of my favorite movies, my favorite Michael Mann movies. You and I are on different pages on a yes, lot of shit, yes. it turns out. You and um, I will just keep talking. It's sure, but, uh, sure. I know, yeah, Public Enemies rubbed a lot of people the wrong way because it seemed it was particularly egregious, I think, or, or conspicuous for a period piece to look as, yeah. as digital as it did. But I would say that's maybe uh, uh, something in his favor that he, that, that he didn't try to, didn't try to trick you. And this, and I agree with that, but I do feel like for me, the next step is okay, but then why did he do it this way at all? And I don't like, I don't like to make value judgments on why somebody does it. It's more, it's like, well, it's my job as a viewer to figure out what they might've been trying to do. And I am often left at a loss, especially with public enemies. And then I, I didn't mind black hat, uh, visually. I thought it looked pretty good, but, um, but public enemies, especially, I think it is when it is at its most conspicuous that, and, and a fair amount in collateral as well. Um, where, you know, just the, the, the darkness and the shadows are just like a, a dark gray and never a full on black. Uh, and especially and just, like public enemies, the camera moves so much that yeah. you can kind of see it. Like I remember yeah. the, uh, one that I didn't like that looks digital. And this is a movie that w- I feel like, film at least people in our film school were really into this movie when it came out or at least were excited about it now no one talks about it which was uh now i can't remember what it's called once upon a time in mexico the robert yeah, yeah. sure sure with, yeah. with, with giant up that's an ugly movie and i like that's a movie where i think the digital stuff doesn't doesn't work it just feels like robert rodriguez trying to make the movie cheap um, which is well, all he does well I, and i'm certain with i don't know well enough to necessarily definitively say but you know the sense that i get from michael mann's use of it as much as anything is the facility and speed with which he sure. can use it and to me that does not necessarily uh produce uh, an image to me that like is as i say polished irrespective of the of the format like as polished as it needs to be and you know or and like i mean i i agreed with the argument that like creating if you're going to devote all the infrastructure to creating a period environment like then play that up don't screw it over by using digital photography and that was and that was sort of the issue that i had with it what it was it was that they did not complement one another not even that that he just used digital because i don't necessarily i don't inherently have a problem with digital as a matter of fact i was just doing a set visit recently uh for a film that i probably should not mention because I think it's embargoed, but, but it was like, I, I got to interview a very acclaimed cinematographer. And I was like, is there even a conversation about this still happening? Has that transition sort of fully taken over? And he was basically saying like, well, there was a time he's like, it's actually slowing down now, which surprises me because I feel like it was like a five year ago conversation about digital photography. But I think like at this point it's so, good like the technology Mm -hmm. that like you kind of can direct on autopilot and it will mostly look fine unless you are using like lipstick cameras in the middle of using like a a, a, a viper or something yeah. like that you know um uh, whenever this conversation bring, comes up I, I like to uh, remind people of the movie side by side did you ever see the movie side by side no uh, oh that's the keanu reeves thing keanu reeves yeah. produced it in interviews it's him interviewing directors and cinematographers about mm-hmm. the difference between uh film and digital it has one of my favorite moments that i know listeners have heard me talk about before he's interviewing david lynch uh, as we mentioned earlier who you know as of i mean since 
at least Inland Empire, right, has been shooting entirely uh, digital, right? I think so. Um, I, I, you know, I had heard that he was going to sh- that they were going to shoot Twin Peaks on film, but I don't think they did. I don't. No, I don't think they did either. Uh, because I'm watching it, and also because of what David Lynch said in this moment when Keanu Reeves says, "So are you done shooting on film?" And David Lynch like takes a moment and he goes. You know, Keanu, I think I might be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm. I'm. Uh, I am certainly not a, a person that is like a purist on film at all. Like it's it's a thing that I. Some people are just so adamant about it, and it doesn't necessarily bother me if somebody chooses to shoot on digital. It's when it's when someone that can avoid the possible pitfalls of shooting on the visual pitfalls of shooting on digital when they could avoid that, but they don't when they kind of steer into it where it's just like, okay, again, like I said, they're making that choice now. Uh, or they're just so, as you said, they're so eager to, to get this done quickly and to create a certain sense of immediacy in the film itself that they're putting that aside. But now I'm being distracted by recognizing how good this could look and how much it is not. But I guess with Michael Mann was someone who is so uh, uh, meticulous. Yeah. Um, like I, maybe this is just me projecting onto him or his wishful thinking. I don't want to chalk it up to like it's just more efficient to do. I want right. to feel like if Michael Mann of all people is shooting a movie to look this way, he's doing it for a reason. There's something yeah. he wants you to notice about uh, this. You know, 1930s. You know, he he built like the entire street outside the, 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 the biograph theater where Dillinger, yeah. Dillinger was shot, like to scale, like perfect, yeah. like, like a, a, a restoration, a historical restoration, and then shot it in this way that makes it look like, you know, like it was shot in 2009, which it was. Uh, and I feel like that can't, I, I, I can't, I can't allow myself to believe that he's just chosen to cut that one corner. Like he, he's doing it for a reason. I'm not, I'm not sure I can say what that reason is, but it's, 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 uh, what's what I'm looking for. Deliberate is what I'm looking for. Well, which, which I totally understand, but I'll tell you, I mean, you know, I think there is a, of all the sort of like broad generalizations I've heard, like directors make, the the uh, just about sort of like aging and the filmmaking process like the one that i that i sort of in a way agree with the most is the one tarantino said about like where you are like where he looks at filmmakers like they're a sort of a tuning fork and there's a period during which they have like the right pitch and then like they once they lose that then they just sort of lose it and it doesn't very seldom comes back and i think before tarantino said it sick boy said it in uh train spotting well sure <laughs> sure sure, it, sure, it, sure. yeah <laughs> um but but i i thought he said it particularly poetically but but you know and i think that there is an, an extent to which like and, and I, I think it's incremental. I'm not suggesting that it's like once you just like fall off, you just suck. Like, you know, I mean, I thought Black Hat was OK, uh, for example. Um, and I did not like public enemies at all. So it was for me an improvement. Um, but, you know, it's interesting to me because I was looking at uh, like uh, throughout this conversation, I was thinking about, well, obviously it also matters in terms of the way it is presented ultimately. And they, you know, did this 4K remaster of Heat. And I went to the screening of that however many months ago when it happened uh, in Westwood. And they're showing it at uh, one of the biggest on the one of the biggest screens in, in Los Angeles. And it was remastered in 4K. And I still didn't think it looked good. It looked as good as film. 
And I'm not suggesting that like Michael Mann's faculties are faulty, but I do think that there are filmmakers who will adopt a technology and be so eager to sort of embrace it in a, in a perfectly enthusiastic and, and, and reasonably enthusiastic way. And yet, um, I mean, not to even go as far as someone like George Lucas, like sort of embracing digital technology, but like that stuff can kind of undermine the, their vision because they have like this sort of singular or single minded view of like yeah. the way they want something to look. And, you know, some of that can be like, well, they're maybe just ahead of their time. And then in other cases it can be like, well, their eye isn't either biologically or just as artistically quite as sharp as it used to be. And therefore like the, this may have fallen off or, or may not look quite as good as it used to when the, in their execution. That's why I give credit to, to Steven Spielberg because I feel like with, uh, with ET, I feel like he was like roped in by like, I can, you know, make me ET more expressive by adding in CG and stuff. Yeah. And like, they put that out. And then like, I think he eventually saw like, oh, maybe I got a little over eager and now he's yeah. essentially yeah. recanted that version. Um, but in terms of, uh, 4k, I mean the, the, if you can objectively say what looks better then uh yeah 4k doesn't look as good as 35 millimeter film because it doesn't have as much resolution uh, yeah. much less 70 and, millimeter and and truthfully you know like if i watch like i have not i have i saw it on the big screen and then i got the blu-ray the 4k and i and i'm sure if i sat down and watched that 4k on my tv at you home it, TV? no no but okay. but like but like even a 4k <laughs> image res to 2k for, for like a via or via uh like a regular blu-ray like i feel like would be fantastic mm -hmm. but again it's that image is not projected on a screen that's yeah. you know 200 feet wide and and so that I, I don't know i find that to be kind of interesting i mean i've seen you know I, like i don't go out of my way as much as i used to to like go see movies either in 70 millimeter or whatever but i mean i've seen 70 millimeter 2001 i've seen 70 millimeter tron that was <laughs> that was sort of my holy grail once i saw that i was like all right i'm pretty good um but seeing certain movies in 70 millimeter with a 35 millimeter print is to, I mean, like it's as good as it gets for me, you know, but then like seeing something that is digital, that was photographed digitally, like, uh, earlier this year, um, collider hosted a screening of Tron legacy and it was at IMAX. And so it was in IMAX on IMAX screen photo like, and they, you know, and, um, Joe Kosinski said, this is probably the best presentation of this movie that there has ever been because at the time that the movie came out, the projectors only were like two or three lumens or something like that. And they were like, oh, right. and they're up to like 10 now. So like the brightness of these really dark images on the big screen was like better than ever, uh, irrespective of what you might think of the plot characters and any other elements. Sure. Uh, I am a, I am a huge fan of the movie, but it, but it was like one of those things where I'm like, this is kind of astonishingly beautiful. And I, and, and it has always looked really good in high definition at home, but like this was, it really was like another, sort of experience. And I think that like to strike a print of that would actually not be as good as to present it digitally. You know, I've been, uh, because of, uh, our friends over at aliens minutes, uh, uh, which I've been listening to and enjoying, uh, the hell out of, uh, I've been thinking a lot about James Cameron lately. Um, and he's, he's a guy that I think my, my relationship with him was, I absolutely love everything he does. And then, you know, I was a teenager when Titanic came out, so obviously it was gross. Um, <laughs> I didn't describe it that way, but that was basically the attitude. Um, and then I think, you know, you, I became a pretentious film student, and I was just like, ah, his dialogue's not very good, and he's not great with the 
plot details or character details. Uh, and then I didn't really like Avatar, and I still don't. But in going back and rewatching Aliens, and I'm a big fan of Terminator 2, and the first Terminator is amazing, and I'd be interested in rewatching The Abyss, as you mentioned. Um, he's a guy that I, I really like him in the broad strokes, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with broad strokes. Like He's a really great storyteller, even if he's not necessarily the best writer. But one thing that I do, that, that I cannot help but acknowledge, is that while it's possible that he has been too dependent on new technology, I think he's one of the ones that does it right. Like when he embraces something, he also revolutionizes it. And I think squeezes every drop out of what that technology can offer. And so when I saw Avatar, I didn't like it that much, but that 3d is like second to none. People come along and flood the market with 3d and it completely ruins it. But yeah, he was for a time there. James Cameron was able to do for 3d what Robert Zemeckis was never able to do for mocap for full full mocap. Like Robert Zemeckis made three, well, yeah. it was a Polar Express, Beowulf, and the Christmas, uh, uh, Christmas Carol. Carol. Yeah, yeah. Made three full mocap movies, and um, it didn't catch on. Well, you know, I actually don't know. I mean, I don't know how much of Polar Express was performance capture. To be to be fair, because um, I know some of it was, but like they didn't do that for all of the characters. Like I think oh, they I only see. did it for like they might have only done it for like Tom Hanks. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, and that might be enough, and uh, the, the, which the, by the, the way, I, I'm a too. fan of Polar Express by the way. And I like the Christmas Carol too, or I haven't watched Christmas Carol since I saw it in the theater, but I remember liking it. Uh, I remember thinking Polar Express was, uh, interesting. Um, it's so none of us dislike all of these movies, but I don't, I never saw the Christmas Carol. I it's pretty good. Beowulf. No. I was a PA on, so I'm always, I'm too close. <laughs> to uh, well, but, but to your, to your point about James Cameron, you know, I, I mean, aliens is, uh, you uh, you guys lured me up here with the with the promise of getting to talk about some of my favorite movies and and yeah, one of them I'm so sorry uh, no 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 but one yes well all right I'll go now um, but no one of my favorite movies of all time or certainly the movie that I probably have seen more in my entire life than is is Aliens I mean like it was the movie for for whatever reason I saw it at a certain age and then like my what that meant because I saw it like that my parents and my grandparents would let me like check it out at the video store or library over and over and over again. So I saw it so many times. And I mean, like, I think that it is like, I think it's a perfect movie. The theatrical version of aliens is a perfect movie. I agree. Um, and you know, I have uh, hell. I like, I still like, uh, I mean, I've liked almost all of James Cameron's movies. I think that, that, uh, true lies is deeply problematic for numerous reasons. (laughs) Um, but I think like the Titanic holds up like a mother. I mean, like it holds up so well. Mm -hmm. If anything, it gets better. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, when, when it came out, when they did the 3d re-release, like, first of all, the 3d is absolutely fantastic. Mm -hmm. I was like, but it also like, to me, like every aspect of that movie works. And that was the moment for me and, and whatever defense I can mount, notwithstanding the sort of documentaries that I found to be kind of repetitive of one another, mm. um, is that he works like on a, he's like a tableau filmmaker. Like he, the reason he takes 10 years to make them is like, and he's not going to go in there and then make something that's like deeply in idiosyncratic. He's like, he wants to make the movie that the person who goes to see one movie a year goes to see. That's and true. so for yeah. better or for worse, I mean like those movies are not necessarily as nuanced or, or, uh, poetic as, as, 
some other ones that we might like in a more personal way, but they end up resonating in a larger way. Although, you know, there have been uh, numerous articles. Matt Singer wrote a really interesting article a few years ago about like why it is that, that avatar has not left a strong cultural footprint. But the truth is that like, you know, I got a 3d TV right after, uh, right when those movies were coming out on home video and, uh, and I, one of the movies that I got in 3D was Avatar. And it was like, there were like two or three movies that I would, when people would come over, they're like, oh, you got a 3D, t- 3D TV? Can you show me something? And so I would show them either um, Tron Legacy, I would show them uh, Avatar, or I would show them Step Up 3D. Step Up 3D is like the greatest 3D movie ever made. But, um, but, they all were like incredible visual experiences and like watching, I mean, it's sort of like when I, when I watch like avatar, I'm like, okay, this is, you know, like the guy who's the villain is doing, I mean like the performance that Stephen Lang gives in my opinion is the best performance that you can get with a character that is written the way that it is. I mean, like, I don't think that it's like a great character, but I was like, but he gives it, as much humanity or nuance or sophistication as it will possibly have. And And he's one of the only characters in the film that has like any kind of pulse to me. I feel like the other ones are very forgettable, but I do remember, (laughs) I remember him and Sigourney Weaver. So I feel like I, I kind of credit him for that. Sure. Um, and just the character's written very broad, but he, he steers into it. I'm a big fan of Stephen Lang. Isn't yeah. 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 But he, you know, but like James Cameron, I mean, there, I, I am as skeptical probably as anybody else about like the real appetite that there is for three or four more avatar movies. Yeah. Uh, I mean it, it to me, it, it's sort of like, I want to see movies by him so badly that I'm like, I don't want him to do just that. Like I want to see these other things, you yeah. know? And, um, his, you know, sort of like foot dragging on just them making a Blu-ray of the abyss is for example, to me is like sort of mystifying. I mean, you know, but then at the same time, like Tarantino promised like a whole bloody affair, yeah. How many years ago, right. you know, and stuff like that. I mean, it took forever for them to do the theatrical version of Grindhouse and stuff like yeah. that. And I mean, like part of that, I'm like, do they just not want to go back and revisit these things? I mean, like there's a part of me that sort of understands that, but, but James Cameron, again, he's such an interesting and curious filmmaker that to me, like, I'm like, you, you, you have too many ideas to, to just put them all in, you know, you have to to put all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. Now that said, um, I will say, speaking of, uh, Rod Rodriguez, um, I was actually able to do a set visit for Alita battle angel earlier this year. Mm -hmm. Um, and James Cameron wrote the script, Robert, and he met with Robert Rodriguez because they had been friends for many years. And Rod Rodriguez was like, what's happening with Alita? And, and he said, here's the script. I haven't been able to crack it. And so Rod Rodriguez took it home and just edited it. Like he literally, he was not trying to, and he was just doing it like as an exercise for himself. He's like, holy shit. Like James Cameron wants me to do this. And in the course of doing that, like basically after he edited it down, James Cameron's like, why don't you just direct this and I'll produce it. So John Landau and he are producing it and Robert Rodriguez is directing it, which makes me more encouraged about a Robert Rodriguez movie than I've been in at least a decade. Um, And, you know, the fact that it's like you have this tableau filmmaker working with a director who I think has, you know, I mean, he's 
I think that he, that Robert Rodriguez is a good technician. Um, and I think that working with, within the infrastructure of a studio, as opposed to sort of his own auspices, uh, can only Meaning be his garage. Yeah. Yeah. can only, <laughs> I mean, they were shooting, I mean, it was shot in Austin, but it was like with the backing of a studio and like all these other people doing the music and the cinematography yeah. and all these other things. I hope it's good because that's definitely a guy who I feel like his, uh, his, tuning fork is out of out of tune sure I, I was very on board the robert Rodriguez train for a while i'm a big defender of the faculty i feel like it's a movie nobody yeah. no one talks about anymore but it's a super cool movie mm. uh but yeah i would say ever since spy kids 2 i like the first spy kids ever since i saw spy kids 2 i was like i'm not sure i'm on board <laughs> i think i mean i still i think his best movie is planet terror honestly like i care more about those characters than i have about any other characters i mean when i remember when desperado came out i was working at a movie theater i was in college and there was nothing I was maybe more excited about. Like I watched the trailer 150 times every time I'd clean an auditorium or whatever. And, and, um, and so there was a long time that I was a big, huge, huge fan of his. And then like, he just kept making movies that I just thought were like cheap and awful. And then when they did planet terror, I was like, I was like, this is like a real movie that has great. I was like, it's got really fun, interesting, memorable characters and like people that you care about. And, and unfortunately he has not done that well since then. I mean, like I think, uh, I think sin city is a successful and an interesting experiment. The first one, the second one just kind of is like, you missed the the cultural moment for this is over. And, and yes. unfortunately like in terms of, Frank Miller's aesthetic, like it's really over. And, you know, you are now just like essentially validating like misogyny and mm-hmm. sexism and, and, uh, you know, lots of other sort of horrifying things to me. Um, did you see any of the, um, from dust till dawn television series? No, I haven't seen it. I, I watched the first episode. It was pretty interesting. It was essentially, they took the opening scene in the in the liquor store of uh, of the movie and made a full like you know forty five minute episode out of it. And it was a great little standalone story. I'm not sure if it got any hmm. better from there, but uh, it definitely worked. Um, so so let's see now. Just to just to remind listeners, because I'm sure we'll get to this eventually. So the movie you've seen the most is probably Aliens. Probably for David, it is Die Hard, and for me, it is Jaws. Um, so just. Just make sure we're all on the same page here. Um, we're all a bunch of real highbrow yeah. movie people. I would say it's not the movie. I mean, the movie that I've seen the most times in theaters is without a doubt. It's uh, boogie nights. Okay. And I, cause I've seen that. I saw that 16 times in the theater. Wow. So, wow. and 12 during its first run. Um, and then the other ones were from repertory screenings over the last few years. I do like boogie nights a lot. I don't know if I like, any movie i, yeah, I saw I traffic that. five times in the theater i don't see mm. this is okay my record it's a, it's a mere four times yeah and it's you're not gonna guess what movie i saw the most i saw it four times when it first came out uncle buck no it was uh m night Shyamalan signs okay i which i still think is a great movie mm-hmm. and i felt like i kept having to convince people when it came out i was like this is a great movie and i'd be like come on let's go see it. that's what i that's what happened uh, with traffic i saw yeah. it twice on my own and three times <laughs> trying to convince my fellow high schoolers to go and see this uh, <laughs> this two and a half hour long drug movie uh yeah so um, what would you say is your favorite movie of all time yeah yeah i mean that's you know it's funny because like i uh have a friend that i'm in the process of sort of trying to organize a sort of uh 
uh, maybe a podcast. Uh, and we just were like, well, we'll start by talking about our, what our favorite, like our five favorite movies and boogie nights. Uh, it's I've sort of had a revolving, like these three movies that were sort of my favorite movie, which was, which are, uh, boogie nights, Rushmore and almost famous. Uh, and, and like sort of depending on whichever one I've seen the most recently usually sure. was the one that was my favorite, but, but the more, I mean, Boogie Nights is something where, uh, like the first time I saw it, um, I, I had graduated from college in, in, in May of 97. I saw that it was coming out. I went with, um, uh, my two buddies, we drove down to Atlanta because there was a theater where it was opening two weeks early, hmm. earlier oh, than wow. in Charlotte. And we just like went to that theater and like watched it. And I mean, I was like sort of entranced, uh, by it. Uh, I had already seen heart eight, so I was familiar with his movies. So it wasn't something that was like completely unfamiliar to me, but it was yeah. also something that I was like entirely unprepared for given the fact that I'd seen heart eight because right, right. heart eight is not, it, it does not right. necessarily lend itself to go. Oh, sure. Yeah. That's exactly the <laughs> same guy. I mean, like it'd be <laughs> one thing. Logical step, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, here's what I'm realizing. Yeah. Here so we go. Times that I've spoken to you in the past, mostly at comic con and I'm realizing we've spoken mostly about music mm-hmm. because <laughs> what's starting on me now is you and I have very, very different taste in movies because mm-hmm. I am not a fan of Rushmore or, or, um, almost famous, but Boogie Nights is a movie that I didn't, I've only seen once and I didn't like it, Hmm. but it's also how I felt for a long time about Magnolia. And I revisited Magnolia about a year and a half ago and realized I was just stupid when I was 19 (laughs) and Magnolia is fucking great. I think Um, you would really like Boogie Nights uh, Um, on second watch. And yeah, so I feel like I need to watch Boogie Nights again because there's a, there's a good chance that I will, that I will love it. And maybe I need to go back and watch almost famous and Rushmore again, but I don't have that much motivation because I've not been a Wes Anderson fan in general outside of fantastic Mr. Fox. And, uh, weirdly of all things, grand Budapest has kind of grown on me. I wish they didn't throw the cat out the window. That really bothers me. <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, and then Cameron Crowe, uh, has made good movies and I just don't think that almost famous is one of them. All right. But I, it's one thing that's interesting to me is that, uh, I don't know if this qualifies as playing uh, armchair psychologist, but um, Boogie Nights in '97, Rushmore's '98, Almost Famous is 2000. So, like, you're, these rotating three movies are very close to each other, hmm. and so I want. I find myself wondering, like, was there something about you or your life at that time that like predisposed you to like really liking these particular movies? Uh, two of them are, one is definitely an ensemble, which is Boogie Nights, but like, but I think Almost Famous has a pretty kind of a sprawling cast, Mm -hmm. even though there's a definite lead. Uh, but, uh, I don't know. It's, uh, I apologize if that sounds like a too personal a question. No, not at all. As a matter of fact, I mean, the funny thing about that is that, and and we, as he and I were talking about this recently is, uh, one of the things that I recognize is that, uh, pretty much like my five favorite movies are, are Boogie Nights, Rushmore, Almost Famous, Out of Sight, and Empire of the Sun. And four of those, if not five, if you want to, like one of my friends sort of jokingly said that even out of sight is a coming of age story, but they are all coming of age stories to some extent. Mm. Um, and I know, I, I certainly know that that's something that resonates with me. Yeah. Um, and which is not to say that they all do now, but like for whatever reason. And I think that was like, I mean, that was right after I, as I was graduated from college and, and afterward. And I know that that has something to do with it. But I also think that they, in a way that is different than maybe many other sort of coming of age stories, like they, 
uh, resonate with with more uh, sort of reality and sort of melancholy sure. recognition of of sort of the process of maturing, and that's something that is like to me always pretty powerful. Like I mean, you know, there's a like Rushmore has this great scene um, where he goes into like he he rats out you know Herman Bloom like right. for them sleeping together or whatever it is and she's uh uh she, she's cleaning out her her desk to go and he comes in and he's like so like what are you you're leaving now and like and yeah. and you know and she's like what did you think we were gonna do like we were gonna like do it or something like that I mean she says do it I can't remember yeah. what it was and he's like well that's not a very nice way to put it and she's like it is if you've never fucked and you know and it was like one of these things that i actually thought was like really interesting because it's like he has no concept of like what adult relationships or love are are like and there is this you know sort of really melancholy realization of that like it's like he's just thinking about like oh it'll be love and hand jobs it'll be wonderful you know like this (laughs) you know just this very immature sort of the perception of the world. Um, and I think similarly, I mean, Empire of the Sun was the first movie that ever like really emotionally affected me. I saw it when it came out theatrically in 1987. Um, it is m- my favorite Spielberg, uh, movie, uh, as, as much as I love Ridge Lost Ark. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's like the one that I am most deeply sort of emotionally attached to. Um, and so that to me is probably a more, um, sort of like apt, way to, to, to group those movies. Yeah. But, but I mean, you're not, you're not wrong. And actually it did not occur to me until like last week. I was like, Oh yeah, all those movies did come out like within <laughs> about like two or three years of one another. I mean, um, oh, go ahead. no, I was just going to say, you know, almost famous was something, you know, almost famous is a movie that really preys on in my case, like as a person who I didn't study, um, journalism but i but i worked for four years for the school newspaper Mm -hmm. while i was working at the radio station uh at my campus radio station and working for student television and uh and so when i got to after i graduated i started writing music coverage and started doing film stuff and when almost famous came out i mean like it is ennobling for a young person who sure. wants to be a film cr- a critic or uh, like a journalist but you know being being honest and unmerciful and you know there's no uh, truer currency than the communication between two people who are uncool and things like that. I mean, like all that stuff is like kind of wonderful when you, when you're like trying to like figure out where your place is and, and you know, you're like, I know about all this stuff, but I'm not really like a complete human being. And like, I'm using a lot of this stuff to like complete the parts of me that are incomplete. Yeah. And uh, you know, and also just sort of, I mean, like by my own admission, I mean uh, you know, when you, go through different relationships that are not successful. You're like, Oh, well these are sad and not totally successful, but they're sad and not successful in these wonderfully poetic ways, you know, and things like that. And, uh, and so I've certainly saw a lot of myself and like some of those characters in terms of their ambitions and like, but, but, but as much so in like the ways in which they failed and lost and, and, and learned lessons quote-unquote um that was something that was meaningful to me and then of course there's like out of sight which is just like the greatest fucking movie ever yeah, made that's yeah, pretty, uh, pretty I, want, I wanted to say uh finally we hit on what we agree on because <laughs> out of sight is fucking great and also if you'd give me a year to guess what would be in the fifth slot i would not have come up with empire of the sun <laughs> yeah. nothing against empire of the sun it's a pretty good movie but i would not have seen that coming. yeah it's not i mean it's not uh, something that uh i mean it 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 was something again that i saw when i remember even 
I remember very specifically going to see by myself at a theater, like and wanting to go. And I remember sitting in there and crying when I was like 12 and going like, wow, this is like really powerful. I mean, like, you know, sort of, uh, so much so that many years later I went to like a press event where I, where it was like a sort of social opportunity to interact. And I like, was talking to Christian Bale and I was like, I was like, you know, I, I love Empire of the Sun. I'm a huge fan. I was like, it's the first movie I've ever cried in. And he just called me a sissy and like walked away. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, that's awesome. I was like, that's perfect. You know, that's great. Is that, is it was consistent. I like that. Yeah. 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 I mean, he was messing with me sure. and I, I was delighted. I was delighted by it. So. Um, is that the first movie you remember seeing alone? Uh, uh, not necessarily. I mean, maybe. Okay. Um, I mean like, you know, there, I, I have specific memories of other movies. I know when I was a little kid, like, and I would go to like Myrtle beach, like my parents would take me and drop me off. And so I saw other things, but I don't remember other specific experiences of like going very much alone. I mean, I remember when top gun came out and my parents, I think were going like on a date for them to go see it. And I was like, can I go with you? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, in me thinking I was like being, so great. I was like, I'll go sit a few rows behind you or whatever. <laughs> and of course I'm watching the movie and I really was like totally absorbed in the movie. It wasn't like I was like, just like trying to talk to my parents or anything, but I was like, Oh wow. You know? Um, but that was definitely one that I remember like n- the rest of my family, not necessarily, I don't know if they had an interest in it or not, but it was something that I specifically had an interest in. Um, I can tell you the first movie I saw alone, uh, you will never guess it. Um, I, and I, I'm forgetting now who directed it, but it was Nick of time starring Johnny Depp. Oh, yeah. Oh, John Badham. Is that who directed? Yeah. Uh, yeah. He did think, one of my other favorite movies, Saturday Night Fever. Um, that's a great, that is a great movie. Um, I think, as I recall, I think uh, I was with like, it was me and my sister and our cousins, like all girl cousins, and they wanted to see something. I don't remember what it was. My dad was dropping us off at the movie theater, uh, and that was like what we were doing, and I was like, Dad, I don't want to see this movie. I want to see Nick of Time, which my mom would never let me see because it's rated R. And my dad was like, fine <laughs> and so then he bought me a ticket for nick of time and that was the the first movie i saw alone but you remember yeah uh, you mentioned myrtle beach i have weirdly uh specific uh movie memories of myrtle beach i once spent uh close to a week there with a girlfriend's family uh in the summer of 2000 okay um and i didn't care for her family and she didn't necessarily care for her family so we spent most of our time alone and went to the movies uh three afternoons in a row and i'm not sure what order I, I if i'm sure the order but i remember the three movies that we saw in myrtle beach were uh the patriot scary movie and disney's the kid starring Boy. bruce willis wow that relationship couldn't have lasted much longer yeah. than that right it did not <laughs> <laughs> damn it bruce willis yeah um yeah, uh, here's an odd thing. So for many years, it's I, I almost feel apologetic about it, but for many years, my favorite film was Citizen Kane because, like, well, what are you going to do? It's pretty great. And tonally, it fit very much in the, the kind of thing that I enjoyed. Um, and then a few years ago, listeners know that uh, a movie just kind of, what will happen is a movie will just sort of grow in my mind over years. And so Nashville came along, I mean, I saw it in like 2002, but just every time I would make my uh, my top hundred every three or four years, Nashville just went up Creep and up. up and up. And then finally, it's like, you know what? I think this might be it might be number one. So as of like 2013, I believe Nashville is number one. And now there's another movie. Oh, that I don't think I, I don't think it's there yet. But the same thing is happening. And this is not a movie. Nashville's like, not quite on the ropes yet. Not on the ropes yet. Okay. 
and I'm sorry Disney's to go. Disney's the kid. Yeah, it's odd you bring it up, um, but uh, but no, it's it's a film that is a combination of I've seen it a bunch of times, but also maybe it's because I've been thinking about it lately. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alien. Uh, it just made my top ten when I did uh, in 2016 my new top hundred. It just it's think it's number nine, and it's like so it's all this stuff is happening with Alien that did happen with Nashville, and I was like, man, am I going to be? Someone whose favorite film is Alien. It's like, well, Citizen Kane for a long time. What kind of person are you in general? Um, and so, I don't know. I just had this thought of like, okay, that's not the worst thing in the world to have your favorite movie be Alien. But now I just feel really uh, wishy-washy. Like, you know, Nashville's up there for four no, years. Yeah, we, we, no. we changed, though. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, those have been my top five movies since well, I don't know when, you know. Um, but I will tell you that it's entirely possible that purple rain could un- could dethrone at least one like in there somewhere. Um, I mean, Mo better blues is probably one of the most, um, important to sort of my cultural, uh, growth. Mm-hmm. I mean, like Spike Lee being one of my favorite filmmakers, yeah. um, at least through, at least through Malcolm X. Um, you know, those, those movies were like incredibly important to me. And like, I think about like that Saturday night fever is a movie I remember seeing when I was like a freshman in college. And I like, like, I thought I had like taken a, like I thought I'd taken drugs or something. I was so excited about how much I love that movie. Um, you know, and these are, those are movies that like stay with me. And it, I remember also seeing like Zhang Yimou's to live and thinking that was like one of the most powerful movies I've ever seen. And I don't think I've ever seen it since. And it just sat in my top 10 is like one of my favorite movies ever. Yeah. Um, even though I've seen, you know, dozens of other movies. I mean, like, like when I know when I was, uh, in high school, like I remember when Reservoir Dogs came out and I went to the video store every day until it came out. And then when it came out, I watched it and I, I became like completely obsessed with it. And, and so I bought like a VHS copy. I'm uh, like, I remember like showing it to all my friends the night before Pulp Fiction came out. Uh, and, and, you know, and I was like, we were going to have like a drinking game. Like we're going to drink every time they say fuck. That was, oh, that was an ill advised. Yes. <laughs> we like, we had, we like, we got like about 40 minutes in and we're all like, we have to stop. Like, I mean, we were just drinking beer. It wasn't like we were like right, doing right. shots or anything, but it was still like, even so it was like, how many beers are we on now? It's like five yeah. or something. Um, and you know, I mean, Tarantino, like I, I think I said this the other day, like on Twitter where I was like, I've never, there's no filmmaker to me whose movies are more relentlessly watchable. Like I can watch one of his movies. And the thing is reservoir dogs at the time was like my favorite movie. And that held for a really long time because I was just so like blown away by it. And I love Pulp Fiction and I really did not like Jackie Brown, but Jackie oh Brown is probably my favorite of his movies now. It's I mean, like great. it is it, like, it is a movie that I was not accustomed or ready to accept as the most perfect hangout movie in the history of, of time and space. Like it was a thing and, and watching the romance between Max and, and Jackie is just like one of the great, yeah, one of yeah. the most beautiful things to, to watch unfold. You know I mean? Just like so much of that movie is magnificent. And so, you know, but then it was probably 2009 or 10, like every once in a while, like on my Facebook feed, it'll be like, Oh, on this day. And my friend, like, it'll be a thing where it's like my friend decided 
I went home to his theater and he would hook up a DVD or a Blu-ray projector to like the little overhead thing. And so we would watch movies in the theater. And one night he was like, we're going to watch purple rain. And, and I, at the time I was like, yeah, okay. And it didn't even occur to me. Like I, like I hadn't seen it in a long time and like we watched it and I was like, holy shit, this movie is fucking awesome. I saw it for the first time last year. Uh, in the theater because they had re-released yeah, yeah. Prince of Passaway. Yeah. And uh, I found myself, I was uh, at a film festival in Orlando, but I was there a day early. Mm-hmm. So I thought like, yeah, go see Purple Rain. Why not? Yeah. And yeah, it really, I mean, in some ways, like, of course, it's it's hokey as hell and, and super melodramatic. But at the same time, like, <laughs> you can't really argue with how good the music is. And I was largely unfamiliar sure. with Prince's mm-hmm. music. And the stage presence of him and Morris Day in the time. Yeah. Uh, and I was just like, it really pulled me in. And I couldn't help but be uh, into uh, what Clarence Williams III is his yeah, father. Yeah, and he's yeah. great. Yeah. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it. Because I like that genre of movies, which yeah. is like Rocky, Eight Mile, yeah. uh, Purple Rain. I actually like uh, Patty Cakes, which is out this weekend. I sure. I really want to see that. Uh, yeah. It's, it's one of those. I like that. But uh, uh, we should probably wrap up soon. But I, I feel like we talked about. Almost Famous and Mo Better Blues and Purple Rain. Now, I wanted to ask you about music because I know mm-hmm. that's your other passion. That's usually yes. what I talk to you about. We And uh, when, when I saw you at Comic-Con, I asked you, you know, how you feel about the year in music so far. The big thing to me that's happened since Comic-Con is Kesha's album, which is uh, 100% home run out of the park. You think for so? Me. Yes. Because <laughs> I have not been a Kesha fan previously. Well, but while like, you guys talk about this, I'm going to go turn the AC okay. on. I'll be um, right back. But I liked the first couple singles, and when, so when when so when the album came out on Spotify, I loaded it up and and listened to it while I drove to work. And uh, I think it's a uh, I think it's a maybe a new classic. I actually have like the thing is I have not really listened to it. Like uh, she has. Uh uh, she she had a song that she from a few years ago that she did the sle- the song sleazy, and there was a remix of it that had like Lil Wayne and Ti and Andre three thousand, and it's like one of the great modern remixes. I mean, like in terms of like these guys all with like these A plus verses, like every one of them. And I mean, she's kind of like secondary on it. I never had particularly strong feelings about her. Um, but, uh, but I had heard good things about, about her album. And, uh, that's a, that's, that's a recommendation. I will, I will definitely check out. I, I will say that, uh, over the last few weeks, like since I got back from, comic-con i had to catch up on some reviews some music reviews that yeah. i was doing for him time and so i ended up reviewing the katie perry album uh and it's not super great um but you know to me it's it's it, it all sounds like stuff that she read in a celebrity profile of another celebrity <laughs> who wanted to be a feminist. And then she's like, I want to do that. Like, I mean right. that to me, you know, although there's some and good, some good music. And then also real quick about that in the, in the digital age, I think like what happens with blockbuster movies, albums are too fucking long. Now mm. Katy Perry's album is too fucking long. Yeah. Lana Del Rey's album is 72 minutes. Oh, that was twice as long as it needs to be. Well, I was going to, I was going to say Lana Del Rey is another one that I, I was tasked with reviewing. And I actually, I tried to just ask if there was anybody else who cared more strongly than I did because she, hers is not music that I'm particularly familiar with. And I really struggled with it. And, and to me, like my struggle is a larger existential struggle with like where, I don't want to be dismissive of music that is not necessarily for me or that 
I, I don't like um, because I don't think that it's bad as much as it is like it may be symptomatic of like a generational divide that I'm just not I'm on the other side of now. I was like, have I reached my get off my lawn moment with some of this music <laughs> with this Lana Del Rey? Because I was listening to it and I'm like, well, these are not good lyrics. And I was like, this really sounds like a person who went to Coachella and then decided they wanted to go back and like make music so that they could wear flower crowns and go back to Coachella as a performer. And I'm like, that doesn't seem that doesn't appeal to me in any way. Uh, and so I was not a fan. Of, and the fact that it was interminable was did not help. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, unlike you, I have liked some of her stuff mm-hmm. in the past, even though it is. I do think it's the kind of music that she will probably be embarrassed of in 20 years, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think yeah. sometimes youthful uh, lack of self-reflection makes for some really interesting music. Sure. Sure. I will say, however, and, and, and a, a, a nice converse to sort of the over length of these other albums is I actually think the Calvin Harris album is fantastic. I haven't listened to that. Uh, and I mean, like it's, it's unlike some of his earlier stuff, it's not sort of electro pop. It's not like this up tempo stuff. It's all sort of like mid tempo, like poolside R and B basically. And so, and it's like, you know, you have a track that's got, uh, like Migos and, and, um, one of the guys from Migos and then, uh, Frank, Frank ocean. And then you have another track that's, that's got, um, like schoolboy Q and, you know, Travis Scott and these other people. And it, 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 to me, like it's, it's, first of all, it's 10 tracks and it's like 40 minutes. Perfect. So, so it's, it's, I mean that, that in of itself is like a a good thing, but they're all, all the songs are not, they're not, uh, overcomplicated. He has a good, he, he, he like took the, the DJ Khaled method of like just jamming these disparate Another people together. Album, by the way. Yeah. 90 minutes, I think. And, and yeah. And yet he, and, but, but what he does is he like, he puts them together in an interesting way and then like, just sort of like lets it happen and then like moves on to the next one. And I mean, I've always thought he was a good producer. Um, even if I didn't like all of the artists that he produced necessarily. Um, but that record, I, I really recommend. Like, I think that it's like, okay. it's, it's, it's unassuming in a way that like, to me it was like, Oh, this is just a good record. It's, it's not trying to be like wildly ambitious where it's like this crazy, like, I mean, DJ Khaled's album is like trying to be like the greatest high school yearbook <laughs> musical yearbook of all time you know whereas he's like these people are hot and they're they're good artists and i'll just put them together and see what comes of it yeah. and i mean like there's a track with ariana grande um pharrell and uh and somebody else whose name i can't remember off the top oh young thug and like to me i just like i i love that song. it's like pharrell's harmonies are beautiful i think ariana grande is actually super talented yeah. even if not all of her music is consistent um but that i song she did with the weekend what's it called love me harder yeah that's something a, like that's a really yeah. good song I mean, like I even came around on like side to side. I mean, if you're, if you're going to have a song about getting bone so hard that you can't walk straight, like it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good song to, to be representative of that. Uh, Interjection. Oh, okay. I was going to say one more thing about, about this, uh, about albums. Okay. Go ahead. But uh, a good thing about an album being a, a more manageable length is that if you're on the fence about it, I more likely to give it another shot. Sure. Which is what happened to me with Lord's album this year. Mm. Uh, didn't love it the first time. Still not going to say I love it, but uh, it has grown on me. I've listened to it all the way through probably three times now. Well, I'll tell you, 
just briefly and uh, to to conclude, I I I was in Italy for my sister's wedding in April, and I was like taking a car to the airport, and we're like driving, and I was like, "What is this song?" I was like, "What is this song?" And I figured out that it was Green Light by Lord, and like my fiance and I were both just like, this is the worst song I have ever heard. <laughs> and I mean, like, I don't know if it is like it, how much of an example it is of all of her stuff or anything else. But I just remember thinking it was like one of the worst things. Like I was just like, that is kind of like stultifyingly bad. Yeah. I'm not and, I, with that song and I didn't, say, and I didn't but, really, I mean, again, like she's not a person that I know well enough to have any like larger judgments of, but, but it was one where I was like, Oh no, this is not for me. All right. Interjection. And then we, we should wrap It's about music. Okay. Um, okay, so uh, so I'm uh, I am part of a Bible study uh, that I that I lead, and every once in a while we will uh, not study the Bible, we'll just hang out and talk about stuff, um, just rap about our lives. You know sure. how it goes. Um, <laughs> Turn the chairs. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> chairs and hats. Yeah. Nothing's forward these yeah, days yeah. except us. Uh, anyway. So uh, one thing that we did, inspired partially by uh, something I believe you, me, and our roommate Cole did uh, when we lived together, uh, or maybe it was mostly just me and Cole, we had a music night. Uh, it's a thing we've done from time to time where essentially, and we all know ahead of time that that's what we're doing, so everybody brings essentially th- like five songs with the understanding you're only really going to get to play three of them. And so we essentially go around and each one person like plays something and then you can become familiar with like other artists and that sort of thing. Uh, so like that's how I learned about uh, Destroyer, which I enjoy quite a bit. Um, one of the rules that I set when we did this was you cannot make fun of somebody else's music. And my reason for this is I have n- I can talk about movies all day long or any kind of dramatic art. Uh, and I can talk about why something might work or, or doesn't work, character motivation. I can talk about all that. I have no idea why I like the music that I like. I can talk about how it makes me feel and I can probably point out things in a specific song that made me feel that way, but I have no, I could never write a review of, uh, of, an, of an album. And so I was, because I feel like it, I, I have no control over how something hits my ear. So aside from being open to having things hit my ear, that's, I feel like that's the most I can do. So I was going to ask you as somebody who does write reviews of albums, like how do you even, how do you even start? Well, I mean, you know what I, I mean, the process for me typically just involves like going through the album and listening to it and then just taking notes about certain things that, that stand out to me. I mean, you know, the truth is that like, I don't have any formal musical training to be able to sort of explain structure or anything like that. But, uh, as a person who has a, like, massive musical collection. I mean, on vinyl, uh, like digitally and, and elsewhere, like, you know, I certainly start to develop a recognition of like what I respond to. Like I make mixes all the time and I made a mix last year and I was buying all these different songs. And I was like, I was looking for a very specific kind of like R and B from like the late seventies, early eighties. And I ended up buying like five songs completely inadvertently. They were all from like 1982. Hmm. I don't know what it is about 1982 that was so important to me that like it, that it's in somewhere ingrained in my memory of like that sound being a certain way. 
Um, but as a person who listens to a lot of music, one of the things that I pay a lot of attention to is like who produces records. Okay. And so when you listen to rock, uh, it's maybe in my opinion, like slightly less discernible, de- like depending on what kind of rock you're listening to, but like hip hop and R and B, uh, it used to be very, it was very distinctive. Um, you know, Quincy Jones is my favorite producer of all time. I mean, he's like, like one of my heroes, quite frankly. Um, uh, because uh, off the wall is like my favorite album of mm-hmm. all time by Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson being the most important artist of my life. Um, and the, the sound that his music made was something that gave me, it gives me a foundation even to this day where I like listening to something and I'm like, Oh yeah. I mean like this song heat stroke that I was talking about the Calvin Harris song, the Pharrell harmonies on that are like, like they're almost chill inducing in terms of they don't they're not like echoing a, a, a Michael Jackson song but they do have like this quality that I respond to now it's hard now of course going back to what you were asking is like the challenge is to qualify that in a way that's not like well I just think this is super rad right um, but right. yeah but like, you know, it's like once, I mean, some of it is, is literally, you know, read, you read other reviews and you sort of see what the language is that they use to sort of characterize things. And then you figure out ways to make that your own. I mean, I remember like Ryuichi Sakamoto because of initially because of the last emperor, but just because he was an artist that I really respected. Like I, I've become, uh, he's a, I'm a huge fan of his. And in like 2000 or 2001, he was releasing these albums with Alvin Oda, who was this like ambient electronic music artist. And he would make these records and it's like, they're barely music in terms of like, like conventional like musicality, but like there would be ones and I would like listen to it. I'm like, to me, this sounds like, and I would basically just go, this sounds to me like, the sound that a mosquito makes when it like lands on water. Hmm. Like, I mean, like, I don't know how to describe it other than that. And like, you know, I remember like a person that I was dating at the time, they were like, like they listened to it after they read that. And they were like, that's exactly what it sounds like to me. Yeah. But I never would have thought of that, you know? And I mean, like I, I'm seldom if ever that poetic when I write my reviews, usually it's like, Oh, there's like some dope beat and I like the bass (laughs) and whatever, you know, but it's like, you know, uh, the, I mean, you're right that like the language of film lends itself more easily to like qualifying mm-hmm. things because unless you really do have like a formal and intimate knowledge of like songwriting structure, you know, and melody and things like that, it is kind of like a, a, a broader sort of, uh, interpretation of like what you're hearing, but, you know, which is why it's interesting. Cause I read a review of like the Calvin Harris album where they were like, well, this is just really slight and there's nothing to it and whatever. And I'm like, but see, I don't agree. I mean, I, I don't agree with that, but also like, it's not necessarily a, a contradictory interpretation of the, right. the material to me. Like it was like, okay. I mean like sometimes you read a review where you're like, wow, they interpreted everything I saw in this movie the exact opposite way. But that I feel like that seldom happens. Usually it's right. like they pinpointed something that you, thought was fine or you ignored or you liked or whatever, Uh, you know, I was, I was reading an article recently by, I think vulture in which they ranked every pink Floyd, pink Floyd song ever written. (laughs) And so I was like, Hey, I know pink Floyd kind of, uh, I know the big albums. Uh, and as I was going through one, I'm a big fan of their album, the final cut, Mm -hmm. which I think is uh, Roger Waters follow up to the wall. And it's very war based and all that. Uh, like overtly so. And I first heard it in high school and I, and it, it's very much, it is very much a, a spiritual cousin to the wall as far as like arrangement and instrumentation and Roger Waters, uh, vocal styling. Um, 
and I really loved it. And so as I'm reading this, son of a bitch, if like the vast majority of the songs from the final cut are in like the bottom 50 or 60. Mm -hmm. And as they write, they're going through and writing like this and this, I was like, I guess I can't argue with that, but I don't know. That's kind of what I like. I kind of like that it's that it's maudlin and over the top and all this kind of thing. And uh, and it was in that moment that I realized I like what I like, and I can probably verbalize why I like something, but I have no idea if I have any musical taste at all. <laughs> so. I mean, you know, I mean, I feel like you know, I mean. I certainly have friends that I think have like objectively bad taste when it comes to movies and music sometimes where I'm just like, Oh my God, I cannot believe you listen to that. But I, but I, but I do think that the subjectivity of liking things is such that it's like, if you really know why you like something, even if it's at odds with like maybe a majority, uh, perspective or opinion, like, I mean, there's, I mean like, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of like ween. I, I, I like, on an inconsistent basis, but like white pepper to me, I like, because it sounds almost like a steely Dan album Hmm. or like, it sounds like a Southern California, like rock, like it's weirdly straightforward, like in all these ways that their other music isn't. And I'm like, I kind of like that, but I know that it's like sort of a polarizing album, you know, or something like that. Um, there's, I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, there's plenty of cognitive dissonance that goes into my like real abiding and, and, and lifelong love of hip hop, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of like the content, the lyrics, sure. you know, and particularly now it's like people can make arguments. I mean, like I'll listen to it and sometimes I'm like, this is just damn dumb. I'm yeah. like, this is just stupid. And I'm like, and then sometimes I'm like, I don't care. I was like, I mean like, you know, and th- there was a, there was a rap song by like, I think it was kid ink or something like that. But and, it, and he quotes this Chris Rock like bit where he's talking about like he's like if women he's like if the beats all right they'll dance all night and like I am like the only distinction that I ever really make about myself when it comes to music is that like I feel like people fall into sort of two categories and you are either a music person or a lyric person which is that you either respond to its music primarily or to lyrics at yeah. least primarily or, or, or initially and I as a, as a music person like I can listen to a beat that I love and be like completely hypnotized or transfixed by it, by the musicality of whatever it is. And like the lyrics can be completely fucking moronic and I can be okay with that. And so, and, and, and I think that that's like, I mean, it's not, one is not good or bad or better or worse than the other. It's just is that's sort of the way that I've always looked at it because I have friends like, um, or, or colleagues who, you know, see, I don't listen, like you were talking about Pink Floyd. I basically almost never listened to Pink Floyd. Hmm. And that's just because I've never really been exposed to them. And I never spent that much effort trying to, you know, but I have friends who listen to like Bob Dylan and singer songwriters like that. And I'm like, "Eh, I'm not really that interested. And it's not that I disrespect their, either their tastes or the artists that they like, but it's like, I was like, have you ever listened to D'Angelo or, you know, the roots or outcast or whatever it is. And like, they probably haven't listened to those things either. And that's totally fine. But like, there's a reason that I respond to these things over here and there's a reason they respond to those. And they're equally valid in my opinion. Growing up uh, in the church as I did, it it has been a, a lifelong struggle to defend certain concepts of art in uh, a community that is on guard. Mm. And one thing that I heard so much in, in middle school, thankfully not from my parents, but from youth pastors and such, uh, this idea that 
you know, kids would listen to a certain artist that is not approved by the church or whatever. Um, and they, and they would say, well, I just really like the music. The lyrics don't really affect me. And then adults would say like, lyrics always affect you. And I remember even at the time, I was like, well, maybe not. Maybe <laughs> yeah. you just like the music. Sure, maybe, sure. Who knows why people like things? And, and it's, impo- it's entire, there have been songs that I really like the, the beat. And I'm like, ah, well, I don't want to sing these lyrics <laughs> when I'm alone in the car because I don't like them that much. Mm. Uh, so I guess this will be one where I sit it out as the singer and I'll just listen to the, mm. the music because that's what I'm responding to. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, a fascinating music. Being able to analyze music is something that I feel like I've never been able to do. And thus it's fascinating to me when someone is able to do it. Um, and I guess, part of what you seem to be talking about is a certain degree of when talking about music, it requires a certain awareness of yourself and what you're responding to and why. Yeah. Uh, because if you're, if you're shut off to that and it just, it just boils down to, well, I just like it, which can be a fine argument, but if you're going to write about, it, you need to say, you need to go deeper than that. Even if that is the, the central argument. Well, well to bring sort of the whole conversation a little bit full circle, you know, when I first, what I realized about criticism in general and the reason that I started doing it in the first place is that I was always interested in why I like something. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a fairly relentless self-examiner when it comes to like, uh, did I, you know, did I say that the right way or was I articulate it in the right way or whatever? And it, like, it just in my interactions with other people, but like understanding like what elicits a reaction and like what I'm saying and how I can affect other people, you know, I mean, like I spend a lot of time thinking about like why it is, I mean, like, it's like, why did I respond so strongly to empire of the sun when I was 12, you know, or mm-hmm. something like that. And I mean, like when I, I remember when I was in, when I was in junior high, I wrote reviews for like our like junior high newspaper. I remember reviewing, like I reviewed the abyss and I reviewed like this Kirstie Alley, John Larroquette movie, like Madhouse, which I think I found like the paper and I read it recently. And I was like, this is fucking hilarious. I mean, like, because I was clearly like using words that I had like read someplace that weren't really applicable and you know and just things like that but i was but it was me sort of like learning about what i like and figuring out why i like it and and that to me has been sort of the ongoing process and because once i have a good understanding of something why it's resonating with me i mean you talk about movies that sort of creep up your list of like favorite movies i'm like i could conceivably within like two years decide that like creeds in my top 10 easily because that movie I, like, I love it so much i mean like i'm like completely like insanely in love with that movie yeah. and and you know <laughs> watching it and like how it how it functions as like a perfectly uh uh conventional entertaining story and yet works to subvert all these other things to me is like really beautiful you know and and really that just comes from like at this point, like knowing myself and going, I mean, you know, my, I have a buddy who's like, I think the ideal movie, I think you would, you were like the ideal audience for movies like magic, Mike XXL and Creed, because you know, it's like, you just want to see, I'm like, yeah, I was like, I want to see movies where like, like dudes just go around and like try to make women happy 
and like they dance and there's really good music. I mean, like that's, that, I mean, that's really what it is. Like, I'm like, I'm like, you know, when watching magic, Mike XXL, which is a movie, another movie that I really love. I'm like, this is like a bunch of like really guys who like sort of in a very sincere and heartfelt way, like just kind of like want to do nice things for women and respect them. And I'm like, and I'm like, and there's also dancing, like dancing. You were asking about musicals, like dance movies or something that I'm like a total sucker for like the step up movies. Like I absolutely like, I love them. Um, and you know, and so knowing that, like going like, okay, well there's that element of this. And then also just like liking watching these dudes, like get along and like not get along with each other, you know, and then like watching these insanely amazing dance sequences, you know, sort of back and forth. I mentioned, uh, being a teenager and watching, Titanic and think, think thinking that it was like gross because like ah there's the there's you know hunky Leonardo DiCaprio and it's a romance and all that. Mm. If I had seen the first Magic Mike, well, I haven't seen the second one. But if I'd seen the first Magic Mike at the time, I'd have been like, not even not even in like oh this is I'm not gay and nothing like that. It would just been like ah this is not for me. But now I can watch it and just say. This is astounding what yeah. these what these guys are able to do, and I know that like maybe it's impacting me in a different way than it's supposed to. Uh, but boy, oh boy, I can appreciate that level of of artistry now. So I guess sure. that speaks to my uh, growth slightly personal growth. growth. Yes, yeah. absolutely. There you go. That's a great place to to put a, a button on it. Um, All of our personal growth. Yes. absolutely. Uh, before we before I do want. Um, with Tyler moving and then being out of town, we forgot our friend Peter sent us another uh, widescreen scope postcard. Uh, Tyler, our friend, our, uh, listener Peter sends us postcards from all over the place. He especially likes to send one when he's <laughs> these ones that are in uh, widescreen aspect yeah. ratio. This is from <laughs> Yosemite. Uh, yeah, yeah. This is from Yosemite, uh, and um, oh, he has a bunch of uh, a bunch of great stuff to say. Yeah, but he's uh, got a pretty good Ask BP question on there. I uh, yes, we'll save that from when we do our video mailbag segment, Ask BP. Which, if you have any questions for Ask BP, the video mailbag segment, you can email them to me at david at battleshipretention dot com. Um, and don't be put off by the fact that we haven't done one in two months, uh, if not right, three. Right, that was also because of the move. Yes. Uh, yeah. We um, didn't have a place for it. Yeah. Uh, so... Um, you can check out uh, stuff on battleshipretention.com as far as this week. I mentioned Patty Cakes. My review of Patty Cakes is up, and my review of um, Marjorie Prime, which you talked about Michael Almereda uh, earlier. Marjorie Prime is fucking great. I don't know if you've seen it yet. I have not. No. Um, really good. Um, that's at battleshipretention.com. Tyler, you can email Tyler at Tyler at battleshipretention.com. I'm on Twitter at Davey Pretension. Tyler's on Twitter at Tyler Pretension. Um, uh, I did, what's going on at More Than One Lesson? I know there's a very somber mini-sode. Yeah, it's, it's mostly a mini-sode talking about the, the events of the last week or so. Um, that was an impromptu decision, mm-hmm. um, so I pushed back uh, a mini-sode about... Uh, uh, the greatest show on earth, which I may wind up posting in a few days. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, so if you want to listen to me, get all maudlin and stuff about, uh, uh, the world we're living in right now, then, uh, check it out more than one lesson.com. Uh, and yeah, t- uh, if you guys haven't listened to the most recent movie journal episode of this show, Tyler and I did, a, uh, you know, uh, give our thoughts on, uh, um, the, uh, heinous events in, 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 in Charlottesville and the, our president's heinous response to it. Um, <laughs> so uh, with that as a lead in, Todd, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, well, I certainly had my own opinions about uh, the amazing 
equally horrifying events of in Charlottesville, Virginia. I wonder where you're going with that. Uh, <laughs> I was just I was just drawing that one out. Um, but no, uh, you guys can find me on Twitter at M T Gilchrist. Uh, M T G I L C H R I S T. Oh yeah, why is why is it M T? Because I always read it as Mount Gilchrist. Uh, my my first name is actually Matthew. Okay. Uh, I have uh, the the. Basically, my parents wanted uh, neither Matt, neither Matthew nor Todd were like family names, but they thought that calling me and they wanted me to go by Todd, but they thought that calling me Todd Matthew Gilchrist would just did not sound as good as Matthew Todd. Um, and with forty one years to reflect on it, uh, I have to agree. Uh, you know, but but uh, anyway, MT Gilchrist is my uh, Twitter handle, and you know, if you want to see uh, like ongoing uh, saga of my two cats, uh, Nemo and Otis, and uh, my never ending shoe collection, you can follow me on Instagram at Best Dressed Todd. All right. Uh, thanks again for being here. No, thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 